We'll jump on into uh, 1 Samuel. Where we left off was in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. And you'll remember the context of what's been going on is that uh, Saul is king uh, in terms of title and position and so forth. But uh, God has basically already moved on. Um, David has already been anointed as king. He's not taken the throne per se. Um, but God is with David and I don't know that God necessarily left Saul that relationship. I'm not sure uh, how to describe, but um, but certainly Saul had left God, I think is fair to say. Um, and we get a, a taste of that. If we uh, go back to chapter 22, you'll kind of get a feel for the intensity of the conflict going on between uh, Saul and David. Um, Look at 1 Samuel 22, verse 6. Um, David, we described him as a, a fugitive, I think was the word Dad said, and I think that's a good, good uh, term. It says, Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Uh, verse 7, Saul said to his servants who stood about, uh, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands? And so forth. And he says, No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. In other words, I know David is popular, but does he have the power to give you things like I do? So why is it that nobody has stepped up and told me that my very own son is in cahoots with David, and why is nobody telling me where's David? All right? That's my paraphrase. So, verse 9. Doeg, the Edomite. Now, Edom uh, was, um, uh, I think, descended of, was it from Esau? Uh, so, casually connected up the family tree, but not close, and um, uh, not a lot of love lost between Edom and the, the people of Israel proper. And well, Doeg speaks up. He says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now, Ahimelech was a priest. And we find in verse 11 that they go, they track him down, and Saul says, okay, you guys deal with, with him. And his army, so to speak, his people are like, this being a priest at all, I'm, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm, I don't want to do anything against the priest. Um, but then Doeg steps up and slays them all. The king, verse 18, the king said to Doeg, Will you turn and strike the priest? And he had no problem with this at all. He struck down the priest and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. In other words, 85 officials and their women, children, infants, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. To say that things were 
tense between Saul and David uh, would be to understate it tremendously. So when we find that David is concerned that Paul, that Saul rather, I keep saying it, Saul is after him, um, there's good reason. So that brings us to chapter 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? So this is interesting. If you'll remember, right after Saul was, you know, the, the people had demanded, Please give us a king. Uh, Samuel says, Okay. You're going to get a king. He anoints Saul. The very first thing that Saul is charged to do is to deal with the Philistines. And over and over we find that he doesn't. And over and over we find the repercussions that the Philistines are still around, still causing trouble. So David, even though he's not officially king, he is God's anointed and he takes this on as if he were king. He hears the plight of his people, and as a covenantal king should, he inquires of the Lord, what do I need to do about it? Verse 2, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than... Let me change my emphasis. We are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? In other words, we're, we're scared near our home place. We're, it's going to be worse if we're further away near the Philistines' territory. Verse 4, Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines brought away their livestock, and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Halimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, Abiathar was the only survivor of the massacre of Doeg the Edomite. He was the only one to escape the sword, and he finds his way to David, to fill him in on what's happened. Verse 7, Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So Keilah was a, was a walled city, and Saul reasons, well, if that's where he is, then there's basically, I got him cornered, there's no escaping if he's within there. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Verse 9, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. We remember the ephod was that priestly covering that had the, um, the holy dice, so to speak, to help answer questions of God, the, the lots that could be cast. Verse 10, then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. 
Okay. Please tell your servant. Uh, let's see. Lost my place. Mm, where am I? There we go. Uh, and the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. I know there are people um, in our church, and perhaps some of you, I know, yeah, Pat, you're here, um, have been um, to Israel and, and seen the terrain there. Um, as I was looking at where this was happening, they, they say that this wilderness of Ziph is, um, would be south of Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem, so 20 or 30 miles south of Bethlehem, uh, just west of the hills there uh, that border the western side of the Dead Sea. And if you pull it up on Google Earth, even today, it looks like barren hillsides. You can see a few little green dots where they've tried to plant you know, orchards and stuff, but it's pretty barren territory, very hilly, and that's where he was hiding. Um, and we know from um, like the information that comes out periodically about the Dead Sea Scrolls, that there's you know, tons of caves, uh, lots of places to hide, but, but not very hospitable countries. So that's where um, they're hiding out. Verse 15, David saw that Saul had come to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king of Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. So how is it that Jonathan can find David and, and Saul can't? Well, presumably, there were David had spies all over and kind of checking the perimeter. So if you see somebody friendly, then you go out to get them, and then you usher him to, back to your camp. And you don't provide that to, to someone of the opposition, of course. They renew their covenant. Um, Jonathan says... Uh, basically, God's got this, and and you will still be king. Well, reminiscent of Doeg the Edomite, verse 19, and I'm not sure why they did this, perhaps because Saul was still the king and they wanted to stay in his good graces, but it says, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us at the strongholds at Horish and the hill of Hakila, which is south of Jeshimon. In other words, here's pretty much exactly where David is. <laughs> now come on down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him to the king, uh, uh, into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord. Now this is, he knows so many of the right words to say, right? Saul has... 
he has all the, the outer appearance of godliness, but there's nothing behind it, right? And I'm sure you can come up with many examples where you can, you can speak like a godly person, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't act in a, a way that's consistent with that. May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. It sounds so amazing. Go, make yet more sure. In other words, double check. I don't want to come down there and, and not find him. Know and see the place where his foot is, and see uh, and who has seen him there. For it has told me that he is very cunning. Right? This is great. Now, y'all know David's sneaky, so I don't want to come down there if y'all don't know exactly where he is. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he's in the land, I will search for him among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. So, David gets word, Saul's coming, he knows where y'all are, you better move. They move. Saul hears, they've moved. He's at Maon now, all right, let's go to Maon. So, there's a, the chase is on. The chase is on. Um, until something happens to interrupt the chase. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to, uh, rather, sorry, to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry up and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. And Engedi is actually on the coast of the Dead Sea. Uh, it still shows up on the map uh, to this day. This sounds like a, like a story filled with lots of action, and it is. It's got kind of David and Goliath, but Goliath is named Saul in this part of the story. Saul has the power. Saul has the big armor uh, and the big army. Saul has the money to bribe people to get what's going on. David has a few hundred men. Um, they're in hiding. They're on the run. Um, it's a very interesting story, and we can, we can, uh, it kind of sets us up for things that happen later in the, in the book, and and why it's especially poignant, as we find out later, that, that David, when he has a chance for revenge against Saul, he doesn't take it. So there's, there's good content here. But we have an unusual behind-the-scenes opportunity with this particular passage. So turn, if you will, over to Psalm chapter 54. 
As is often the case, um, not all the time, but some of the time, when we get to a psalm, there is a, a heading, a, a title, so to speak. In my Bible, it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So in this particular case, we get to see an insight into what was David thinking as Saul was coming, as the Ziphites betrayed David to Saul. Where was David's head at that moment? You know, we know very much David's downfalls. Um, the famous one, of course, with Bathsheba, but we also know his victories. We know his place in the uh, kingly line leading to Jesus. We know um, the Goliath story, um, the days leading up to that of killing lions and bears and all this sort of stuff. And I think we generally and perhaps appropriately have David up on a bit of a pedestal uh, as we think about this amazing figure in history. But this psalm, I think, brings home the point that he was also a man. And he was a man who had his own anxieties, his own fears. He was, he was, he was worried. He was scared about what was going on. And we'll get to see that. But he also gives us a good example of what do you do when you're in that circumstance. So let's go through Psalm 54. O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. We think a lot of names, even now. You know, when a new baby comes, what do we want to know? Well, what they name him, right? Um, but to whatever extent we think names are important, in this culture, way more than that, way more than that, the importance of a name. You remember that when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush and, and says, you need to go get my people out, Moses' first thing was, well, yeah, but when they say your God you know, our God wants you to let the people go. What do I tell them your name is? Because that was a very important thing. And, of course, God says, I am sent me. Say, I am sent me. Um, so names were very important. And when, when David says, oh, God, save me by your name, he's thinking of all the godly attributes that would be wrapped up in that name. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. In other words, I know you are the person and I know you are the person with power that can get me out of this predicament that I'm in. Verse 2. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers, 
have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not see God before themselves. Oh God, hear my prayer. Verse 2. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Uh, in where it says, Oh God, save me by your name. Uh, there's the word Elohim. In verse 2 and again in verse 4, we have the word for Lord. We have Adonai. Hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. David knew he was addressing the God of all. And he gives a circumstance. Strangers have risen to get me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Some uh, people quibble with the Hebrew on this word strangers. Um, is it strangers or does it just mean um, insolent men? Um, in other words, these are not friends. It says they do not set God before themselves. These are not people who are looking after you. These are not your people. Um, you know, God, I am your people. Um, so, so look at this situation. Um, with compassion. Verse 4, Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. So as is often the case, uh, one of the most important things we can do when we're afraid is to remind ourselves, where's God in this? And so he says, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. Many times when we get, colloquially we would say, get our tail in a crack. <laughs> Can you say that in Sunday school? Because <laughs> uh, that's what it feels like, right? We can look at a lot of different ways to get ourselves out of that. And if you look across the country, people look a lot of things to get themselves out. It might be technology. It might be the government. For some people, it might be wanting their friends or family or their spouse or maybe their church to bail them out. And in any circumstance, perhaps all those things might be fine, but is that where we should look first? David knew the upholder of his life wasn't, you know, the divine right that Samuel had bestowed on him. It wasn't the status he had with his army. It wasn't his best friend Jonathan who was very close to Saul. But it was God that was his helper. Verse 6. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Finally, as he's been building this up, this theme that he started, O God, save me by your name. Verse 6, it's, I will give thanks to your name. And this is where we see the Yahweh, Jehovah. For them, the the pinnacle of names of God, for it is good. And then we have this 
we have this picture where he had not yet been rescued, but his faith in the Lord's power and might and then everything encapsulated in the name Jehovah is so great that he sees his deliverance as if it has already happened. He says, for he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked on in triumph on my enemies. And that's why in verse 6 he says, with a free will offering I make sacrifice to you. This wasn't some sort of bribe, I'm going to sacrifice so that you'll save me. This was because he already saw his rescue as having happened because of his faith in God. And he was able to look into the future to that day when there would be triumph. This is really cool, right? I thought this was really cool. To be able to say, okay, here's sneaky, cunning David Pretty much any battle that he touches seems to work. He gets direct answers from God. Think about that. He gets direct answers from God. I mean, this is the ultimate phone-a-friend, right? He, he can find out exactly what he's supposed to do, but yet he is feeling the pressure. And he turns to God and sees him as his help. Every now and then there are little, I might think of as divine accidents. As Dad and I compared notes about teaching, um, and he was ready to get back on track, he said, well, um, well, let me take March. Great. Well, last Sunday wasn't March. So I assumed that I would be teaching. And this was the lesson that I had together. And my mind was on the resurrection. Let's go back through Psalm 54 and see if you see the parallels with Jesus and the last week. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Can you think of that prayer in the garden? The garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is saying, Lord, if there's any way, is there any way for this to cup to pass? Hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. We know how earnestly he prayed, right? Where sweat as if drops of blood came out. Verse 3. For strangers has, have risen against me and ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. How many times did that happen? We have the Pharisees. We have him before the trial. People with every verbiage as if they were God's people, but yet they did not set God before themselves. They were not in line with God. And then think about the Romans. 
David no doubt felt surrounded by these strangers who have risen up against him. And here we have Jesus on the cross, surrounded by strangers, with perhaps just a, a couple of exceptions. Everyone else had abandoned him. But we know that Jesus cried in verse 4, like David's, God is my helper, the Lord is my life. It was to God that Jesus cried out. And then in verse 6, his free will offering, I will sacrifice. And you could say, for it is good and it is finished. But then we know that prior to then, even as he spoke to the thief, he was able to look ahead to that day when there would be triumph. It was after Easter when we see all the, the, um, the times when we're told in Scripture where Jesus met with people, right? And I always flash back to that passage, in the, that latter passage in Luke, when, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he meets up with the people. They don't really recognize him. They tell him about what all's happened. And then finally, you know, those, their eyes are open. They see him for who he really was. And it talks about how Jesus goes back through Scripture, beginning with Moses and all the way through, and tells him about himself. And I can't help but wonder... If, they, if he might have touched on this song. I don't know. But I think it would have fit. Because we know that from a redemption standpoint, Jesus is the ultimate Moses. And we know from a reigning standpoint that Jesus is the ultimate David. Everything that was foreshadowed all the way through, Jesus was the fulfillment of all those things. And I think this, this little chapter, among many others in Samuel, where we hear of the running, but in God's providence, we get to see behind the scenes of where was David Hart in all this. And then I think it also gives us a little bit different perspective on maybe what Jesus was going through and then ultimately as we feel those anxieties and we feel those pressures we know God's name so to speak even more fully than David did right I'll close if you flip over to Ephesians I'll have to flip since my computer died about 20 minutes ago Ephesians chapter 1. And the whole point is this power that God has. Verse 19, and says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but the one to come. So David knew the power of the Exodus. David knew the power of the miracle at the Red Sea. David knew the power of God in his own life with David versus Goliath and that sort of thing, but he didn't know the power of the resurrection. And since we do, we can approach God even more boldly with the confidence that he can always be that first person that we turn to. All right. Oh. This doesn't have anything to do with the lesson. Fact, does it? All right. Well, then I'll uh, stop.